session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Jalakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show, or suggest topics or books for the program, the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. I know that there's basically one thing on everyone's minds right now, so talking about anything else might seem tone deaf or just uh, hard to even listen to or maybe not so important, but um, I definitely will be talking about coronavirus later in the show, but I will try to follow my usual pattern on a Monday and talk about the book of the week from last week and and mention this week's book of the week. But I know um, a lot of things seem a lot less meaningful right now when we're so focused on what's going on and our health and our safety and health and safety of our loved ones. Um, So I can understand that many people are thinking about that more than anything, but I'll go ahead with the show, um, not just as a distraction, but just to keep going forward. But as I mentioned, I'll talk about coronavirus later on in the show, uh, not as giving you updates in the news because I'm not the source for that, but just to share some thoughts um, that I have on that. But um, So I will get into the book of the week from last week, and before I do that, this week's book of the week is Misbehaving by Richard Thaler, Misbehaving the Making of Behavioral Economics. Uh, Richard Thaler is a Nobel Prize winning economist, and this is his book from a few years ago um, where he talks about behavioral economics, uh, an area that my brother has taught me a lot about, but I'm looking forward to reading his book and sharing it with you next week. Uh, The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is What's Your Pronoun by Dennis Barron. What's your pronoun beyond he and she? And um, I bought this book a few months ago and wanted to read it. And I even actually um, picked it for this last week because uh, a friend of mine, Chelsea, a friend of hers, um, it's interesting, I have to use, I'm using pronouns right there, but a friend of hers who was transgender um, took their own life, had uh, committed suicide, and they were transgender. And um, of course, the issue of pronouns is not the only issue. But it's related to or has become very much in the conversation of transgender rights and rights of LGBTQ individuals and people who consider themselves non-binary as well as um, other movements, including the feminist movement. But because of that, that inspired me to want to pick this book out of the ones I had um, to talk about tonight or read for last week. Um, So I, I really enjoyed the book because in the book, Dennis Barron, who is a professor of English and linguistics. He goes over uh, the history of these pronouns. And so what that means is in English, we don't have a singular pronoun that is um, non-gendered or can be used for anyone. So uh, 
For example, people say he or she. Uh, I'll talk about the word they, which might be the best option. Um, but we don't have a word. It's interesting. In Farsi, they don't have this. You say ooh, um, and it doesn't have a, a gender or sex attached to it. It just means a person, uh, and you don't know who it is. And so not every language has this issue or has these gendered pronouns, and not all of them don't have one that is neutral. Um, but in English, we have this problem. And it's interesting, actually, I think one of the reasons why Iranians who learn English at times have a hard time with he and she is because they're not used to using it. So it's a way that we tend to make fun of um, the previous generation or individuals who are learning English because they sometimes will say, oh, this is my son and she's a very good basketball player. And so they mix up the he's and the she's could be partially because they aren't used to using them. They didn't have them in their original mother tongue. But anyway, in English, we don't have this word. And so traditionally, throughout a lot of history, we would see the word he would be used. So, they, you know, you would say um, if someone wants to um, become successful, he must work hard. And the assumption was, or the way it was explained, was that he included he and she. Now, a note about that, too, I, I thought was interesting in the book. And when I read about this topic, you hear about gender and pronouns. But it seems to me that a lot of times the way it has been used, at least historically, was it was more about sex, male, female, what that was being indicated, not necessarily gender of being man or woman. Of course, those are related topics, but not exactly the same. Um, and then now it's being used also in the conversation about gender, which is which a lot of people are describing themselves as non-binary, meaning not just man or woman, something different, something in between, something not exactly into those two categories. But anyway, the conversation itself for me is interesting that they say gendered when it often seems to me that it's more about sex before, especially. Can a man do this? Can a woman do this? Does it include them? Not they're expressed to gender. But anyway, so it was just assumed uh, and you, a lot of people who are grammarians or people who are talking about the language would say he included women and men, um, which, of course, has a sexist overtone to it or is blatantly sexist, that that was the default was he. Um, and so many people, especially the men, thought, well, there's no problem here. He always includes men and women. Of course, it doesn't always because if you're talking about a man, it doesn't. Um, but there, this also created interesting issues legally in different ways, in political ways. So um, as you go through the history of looking at this, and it's not something new, I should mention that uh, many people think, oh, this pronoun issue is something new because of feminists or because of the LGBTQ community wanting to have new words or new things, to, to new ways to describe things. But these debates go back hundreds of years. And that was also interesting for me to see the history of um, these words, the different battles and struggles that came up, different people trying to create new words, which he, he devotes a lot to. Not only does he talk about that throughout the book, at the end of the book, he has a 60-page section where it goes over the history uh, of these pronouns over the years, which was quite interesting, actually, to see that. I really enjoyed that part of the book, um, describing different pronouns that were developed at different times um, to try to... Uh, fit this, uh, you know, this missing word, as he puts it, this need for a missing word. But anyway, so um, 
the book was very interesting in, in describing the history, but going back, so for example, they would say he includes men and women. But then when it came to the right to vote, the voting laws had he in them. And for example, in the United States, it was assumed it just meant the men. And so that was interesting. Now, at the same time, they said that was limiting the rights of the women so they could not vote. But then when there was criminal laws that just had he, they said, well, of course, that includes women. So women can't murder someone because the law says he. But it was interesting that they drew this distinction that sometimes it was including men and sometimes it was not. Um, and so in this case, when it came to voting, of course, women should not vote. And you, you hear a lot of people uh, over history talking about this concept and saying, of course, it doesn't mean women when it says he, it just means the men. Um, but then, of course, when it comes to laws like taxes or criminal actions, it includes the men and the women. And it was interesting, this, of course. And so even there was laws passed in the United Kingdom and the United States saying that he always means male and female both included except for when it's obvious basically is how the law would be written um, but of course this obvious is not always so obvious depends on who you're talking to at what time um, so that was that was interesting to see that history and to see that it's not just a new issue we're having uh, this is something that's been going on for hundreds of years so suffragists um, people who wanted women to have the right to vote including Susan B. Anthony they thought it was interesting this distinction that when it came to laws women were included in that he but when it came to voting they were not so clearly it showed that not having this word as he has a whole title of a chapter called the missing word led to these issues where we did not have a word um, that's a gender neutral or a non-binary pronoun in english and because of that it can lead to these confusions now he describes different aspects of what happened, including a whole chapter on the words that failed. And so many words and sets of words have been created to fill this gap. Uh, a, a more popular one is thon, T-H-O-N, or here, H-I-R-Z, Z-I-E. And I'm just saying a few of them, as I mentioned, the end of the book has different entries throughout history. Probably there's hundreds of them over a few hundred years um, that people came up with that tried to make that word, the created words. And none of them have really stuck, as he says. Some of them are still being used, and um, you'll see people describe themselves with some of them, but there are none that are very common. And so the interesting thing about language is we sometimes think of language as something very official, which it is, and one of the ways um, we make it official, or we think of what makes language and the words official are dictionaries and so he talks about that how a few of these alternatives did enter dictionaries in different uh, times um, but none of them really stuck but so there is this um, officialness of language in a way but at the same time language is a living thing each language is living in that it also evolves over time if you look at how people wrote english 300 years ago compared to now you'll see lots of differences some words change some words disappear, new words appear, some words combine to become shorter. Uh, there's lots of changes that happen. So in that way, because language is this living, in a way, living and breathing thing, um, it also can evolve in a more natural way usually. So when someone comes and tells you, from now on, use the word thon, 
and officially everyone has to start using this word, it usually doesn't work. But what does work is seeing what people use, what is being used over and over again, written over and over again, until it becomes accepted and a part of the language. So none of these words have really succeeded. So that's why he has a whole title called The Words That Failed. Looking at all these words that were developed, sometimes um, he also a lot of times describes where the word came from, why the person came up with that. And sometimes it's combinations of he and she together. Sometimes it's taken from different languages, but none of them have really stuck. Now, interestingly, uh, what could be the best option for this gender neutral singular word is the word they, which sounds strange to a lot of people, because when I say singular and they, they, we think of as meaning plural more than one people, like a group of people. Um, but it doesn't have to be the case. So one of the things that people would talk about when it came to this pronoun is had to agree both in gender and in number. So if it's he, when you're saying men and women, some people don't agree with that, but they'll say, no, it includes both. Um, but then when you say they, for a lot of people, they've resisted that because that can't be singular. However, what interesting for me that I learned in this book was that the word you, when I say, hey, you, how are you doing? Or how are you? Um, which to me seems very much only singular. It actually was originally a plural word. So several years ago, you only was plural. And then over time, it evolved to become singular. So that was interesting for me. And so they actually um, can have a similar history in some ways, or maybe the opposite, but it, it's used in a plural sense, but it can also be used singularly. And we actually use it a lot of times as a singular, even without realizing it. Um, so for example, he had this, someone used this example in the book. If I said, uh, you know, someone called for you, you'll say, oh, did they leave a message? Right? So I said someone. So you obviously think it's just one person, but you say, did they leave a message? And it feels very natural. I'm sure even when I said it for most of you, nothing stuck out as, oh, that was really wrong or there was something wrong with that sentence. But we typically write that way. And he cites our people who have been proponents of the word they have cited how great uh, authors, I think Jane Austen, amongst other very well-known uh, literary figures, have used they in a singular form. And it has worked. And there's no problem there. And just to give you an idea, I didn't say this earlier, how it becomes an issue. Um, he uses this sentence when, when we don't have this singular word. If I say, everyone forgets blank password sometimes, I can say everyone forgets his password sometimes, everyone forgets her passwords, everyone forgets their passwords. Now, there would seem like it's incorrect as far as the agreement of number. Um, but we can see that that's where that, that lack of a word in English, the missing word, uh, makes it hard to write things. Sometimes people say he or she. I even say that on the show all the time. I'll say, um, if you go to your doctor, he or she might, da, 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 because I don't want to say just he, which was oftentimes used before to include in a way, quote unquote, men and women, but of course, emphasize that men her, would only hold certain positions or occupations and women would not. Um, but actually, when you even say he or she, because some people don't consider themselves in the binary um, formulation of gender, they might feel like they're not included. So another word actually would be better in that sense as well. Uh, so I think they does work very well for that. And that does seem to be, he doesn't say it in some explicit, this is the word, this is what everyone should use, but he does show a lot of evidence 
in the last chapter, chapter five is the missing word is they. So clearly that's his opinion that this could be a good word to use um, as a singular gender neutral pronoun. And I actually agree with that. I've mentioned to some people recently that I think we need to come up with a new word. I clearly had not read this book to see the history of what's been going on. I knew there was these alternatives that people talked about, but I obviously didn't know it in this type of detail. Um, but I can see how they might fill that gap of the missing word quite well. And so to me, it makes sense. But if uh, you know you want to get more of an understanding of this process, I did enjoy this book. I like to read books that aren't just in the field of psychology. The next one's on behavioral economics, which of course is a blend of economics with psychology, one could say. Um, but this one on linguistics, and especially this pronoun issue, which is gaining more and more coverage because of the political issues that it touches, including feminism and gender equality, um, and also LGBTQ rights and the rights of transgender individuals and individuals who are non-binary or identify as non-binary. I was very happy to read this book to get more insight into that. And he does a great job going over the history and explaining what has worked, what hasn't worked. And again, this uh, concept of they, that they could be this missing word to fill that gap and maybe not fill that gap as in it's new. It's been happening for a long time. Maybe we can accept it more and more as many people already have. All right, let's go to our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, there's really one thing on everyone's right mind right now, and that's the coronavirus and how it's um, affecting our friends and loved ones and affecting everyone's lives. And uh, it's been really uncharted territory for all of us. Uh, I can definitely speak for myself. And this is not the place to get your updated news. Uh, right now it's March 16th around 8.20 p.m. in Los Angeles, but um, I'm definitely not the source of new news and updated news there's lots of places you can look for that which i also will mention um where you might want to look and where not to look but um i'm just here to share some thoughts on it but there's and also if i share those thoughts with you or share the news i should say within a few days that news is changing because it's changing really uh, within the day so if you're listening to the show later on um I don't know what's going on then, but hopefully things are getting better and not worse. And related to that, it's, we got to look at what we can do to help in this way. Um, one of the things I see a lot of people sharing online is a lot of conspiracy theories and a lot of theories about how people are making this too big of a deal and that it's not a big deal and why do we care and the media is trying to do something or uh, different political parties or individuals have a specific agenda and that's what they're doing with this um, and when there's times of uncertainty and times of panic and fear we turn for people who we think have the answers and of course parts of our our personality and our psyche come out uh, if you have a paranoid side you're much more likely to look for the 
the reason behind this in some negative way, that someone has a negative agenda. And when I was saying look for news and look in the right places, we want to turn to our experts. Now, is it possible all the experts are also in on some big conspiracy? It is. I can't tell you 100% that's not the case. But what else can we do when we have medical professionals telling us things? And I should also add, you can find a doctor that'll tell you, you know, don't worry at all. There's nothing to worry about. Um, you can do whatever you were doing before. They're just making this up. There are a lot of doctors and a lot of professionals who will say lots of different things. But we want to go to the overwhelming majority of the, the cases or the doctors who are saying things. And especially organizations like the World Health Organization and here in the United States, the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, um, who have the better information. And what it seems to uh, indicate when you look at these types of sources is we're dealing with a virus that is highly contagious and um, if we're not careful we can um, have a lot of people get infected or it seems that a lot of people will get infected maybe i should say the other way around if we are more careful we can limit the spread of this disease but if we're not um, we will just be aiding its spread and how it's going to get to more individuals. Now, something people also talk about a lot is uh, the mortality rate, which I've seen 2%, 3.4% different numbers. Um, and so it's interesting how that makes people think, well, that's not that much. Why are we caring about a few percent of people that even get it will die? Well, first of all, the numbers that are projected are huge. So we're not talking about just a uh, few hundreds or thousands, but possibly millions of people um, could get infected and millions maybe could die depending on how many people get it. So those numbers aren't small. Um, but two things related to that. One is we shouldn't measure the cost of something or we shouldn't just think about death as the only cost. It actually reminds me of war when people think, oh, well, how many people died in that war? Oh, 7,000 or 15,000, whatever it is. That's not that many people. Well, first of all, those lives were lost and each one of those is significant. If it was your own family member, you might think about it differently that just however many people were lost. So those lives are important. And on top of that, there are so many other costs that come about from war. For example, people get injured. So they didn't die, but they got physically injured. People get psychologically injured or hurt or come back with PTSD and other issues that they're dealing with. Families were separated while the war was happening. Um, the area where the war happened, lots of damage usually is happening there too. And then there was a lot of money that was spent on the war that if it was not spent there, could have been used on other resources. So uh, when we look at the cost of something, if we just look at death, it's a very bad way to measure the cost of something. Of course, that's the biggest cost or that's the most extreme cost that someone can pay or that we can experience, but doesn't mean there's nothing else to worry about. So I don't think if you just think of death and think, oh, who cares a few percent? Well, even if you don't die, if you spend a, a week in the hospital, are you okay with that? Probably not. Um, and again, the costs become more and more to the world uh, and individuals if we're not careful. So if we just think about the death rate, we might get distracted by that or it might make us under evaluate how significant the impact of this virus can be. And the other part is this sense of, well, I'm safe. I'm not going to die, uh, which a lot of people might have. If you're not at risk, 
great. Um, but here is again where empathy should play a part, where we think about other people that, okay, you're not going to die or likely you're not going to die. That's good. But what about other people who are vulnerable? And if you are not careful, you could spread that disease. So it gets to those people that are vulnerable and they die because of you not wanting to make some kind of change. You not wanting to, um, listen to what the authorities are telling you. And so, as I was saying, our issues in our psyche come out. If you have issues with authority, then when they tell you, you should stay home and do certain things, you're like, oh, the hell with you. Let me, let me show you staying home. Or you're just saying that because of whatever, whatever the reason is, it brings out this rebellious side that I don't want to listen to them. Um, I've seen some funny posts where people say, you know, everyone is staying in and watching Netflix every weekend anyway. And now they tell you that you have to stay home and, and watch Netflix or just be home. And people are like, oh, no, I can't do that. I need to get out and, you know, be in the sunshine and be outside. It's rainy here in L.A. anyway, so not a lot of sunshine. But uh, nonetheless, it does give you this feeling of rebellion that I don't want to do it now that they're telling me to do it. Um, but we have to think about the others. So you are not affected by it. But how can we not care about what's happening to other people? And as always the case, if you, even in a selfish way, if you don't care about other people, this will spread more and it's going to impact you longer because it'll affect more people. That'll have a bigger impact. It'll lead to more things changing. So at the end, it'll come back to you too. So as we tend to see, even when we're thinking of other people and think it's just about other people, usually it benefits, benefits us too in the long run. And in this case, not such a long run. It might be a fairly short run, but it'll affect us as well. So I hope people will take it seriously. Now, of course, some people go to the other extreme and they're panicking and buying 8,000 rolls of toilet paper. I don't know how long they think and how many times they think they're going to be pooping, but they're ready for uh, some kind of crazy apocalypse where they won't be able to get access to a toilet paper for a long time. Um, but we also see that in how people are stocking up on things, uh, at times a lack of thought of other people, um, uh, thinking just about themselves and, you know, I'm going to make sure my butt is okay, literally and figuratively, but not worry about other people and how they're doing. So that's something to keep in mind. And also I understand at some level when we are under stress and under pressure, um, our survival instincts will kick in and we think we have to hoard and take care of things and we don't care about anyone else. We become a lot more selfish and a lot less kind and generous and charitable when we feel like our own life is at risk or in danger in some way. And I'm worried that it's going to bring out uh, the worst side of people when they start freaking out about things or um, if some negative things start happening. We've already had some negative impact, but if people get more and more negatively affected and get more panicked about things, it could bring out slightly a worse side of people. I'm not anticipating something like the purge where people are just going out committing crimes and anarchy, but it could lead to people bringing out a little more harsh side of themselves, more selfish, more greedy. And I think that's unfortunately something we've observed. And like I said, it is partially human nature not to justify it or say it's okay, uh, but it is a reminder of right now lots of people are stressing about resources, people that maybe never have had to or haven't had to for a long time. Uh, but it's a reminder 
that those who are dealing in those kind of situations, people who don't have um, enough food to eat or don't have financial security or are in constant fear of having enough money to take care of themselves, take care of their kids, take care of medical issues, uh, that can affect how they act and how they live. And so when we see people acting out or acting in a certain way and we think, I would never do such a thing or look down upon someone who's in a worse circumstance than us and making some decisions, uh, we should keep in mind that if you are in those decisions, th those situations, you probably would make some bad decisions too. And we've seen this even, you'll see people fighting in supermarkets over toilet paper or over food or over different things. And so people might think they're um, very humane and sophisticated and quote unquote civilized. We see that when they are threatened in some way, other sides of them come out. And so hopefully that can also lead to some empathy or uh, change your mindset to realize, wow, imagine if I felt this way more of the time, or imagine if I felt closer to this more of the time, how that might affect what I do and don't do and how I act. And hopefully we'll keep that in mind. Now, this might also sound a little cheesy or cliche, but uh, there is a way that hopefully this brings people together as well. I was saying it could bring out our worst side, but even on a global scale, um, we see scientists from different countries communicating. Something, of course, they do, but people trying to help one another out. And I hope that trend will continue. Um, and this is also going to be very cheesy and cliche, but it's a reminder of how we're all human and that we can spread it from one to another, regardless of race or religion or whatever it is. So in that way, we are too similar. Maybe it's good, but also bad in the sense that we can share it with each other. Um, but it's a reminder of that common humanity that we all can suffer and we all can bleed the same and hurt the same when it comes to this, but also we can all come together as well to help each other to try to limit the impact that it has in all the ways that we can uh, that we all should think of that maybe you're not someone who's uh, on the front lines helping and of course a big shout out to all of them the doctors nurses all the medical professionals and um, individuals who are involved in treating people and the front lines to take care of these individuals um, they're really putting themselves in risk and sometimes in some ways and so uh, definitely we appreciate them always but especially during this time trying to keep us safe minimize the damage and the impact it's having on individuals and again we want to listen to those people who are uh, the experts and who are experiencing and what they're telling us to do um, that is so important that we keep that in mind so we hopefully all will come uh, together and so we can do our part by isolating the social distancing that we see that trend or people talking about that online that can have a big impact and you see people writing uh, flatten the curve so we can try to flatten the number of cases so that the curve that represents the graph of the number of cases number of deaths those things can flatten out because if we lived life as usual it seems like this would spread in some enormous ways it already has but if we take some small measures even of isolating doing social distancing it can have hopefully a, a big impact. And so I'm hoping we can all come together to everyone out there who is listening, I'm wishing the best to you and your families and also just for everyone in the world that hoping that we can overcome this and maybe there will be life as usual or at least some kind of usual. I know for everyone we're missing life how it was. As they always say, you don't know what you've got till it's gone just you know, a month or two months ago. 
maybe for everyone in the world, if more than that, a few months ago, we were living what was our typical normal life. And now everything seems to be flipped upside down. And we didn't even realize things we took for granted, like going to public events or being out in public are things that we might not be able to do for some time, which will be a challenge, but I hope we can get through it and we'll get through it better as always if we stick together, work together and try to help each other out. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the last segment, I shared some thoughts on the coronavirus and things that are going on and ways we can all help and hopefully we will do our part together um, to try to make the best of this very difficult time and challenging situation that we are all in together. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about how to deal with being quarantined or not officially quarantined, but staying home more, which is something that a lot of us are already dealing with. Even this weekend, I did have times where I felt um, what you might call cabin fever, just feeling like I was stuck inside um, for too long. And so if, as I was saying before, we want to try to flatten the curve and do our part through social distancing and stay home more. And that can be tough in some ways. If someone said, you know, if you're working hard, a lot of people think, oh, I wish I can just stay home all day. But then when you're forced to stay home all day, it's a very different feeling. So of course, when you're forced to do something, not in a rebellious way, but it just doesn't feel as good as when you're choosing to do something, of course, even if it was going to be a similar thing. Uh, and also being at home all day and for days, and we don't know how long it's going to last, it can be depressing. It can get to you over time. It reminds me of when people sometimes get excited that they have the opportunity to work from home um, before this crisis. Uh, and they get excited, like, oh, I hit the jackpot. I can just be in my pajamas and work and work whenever I want. I don't have to commute and all that. And so there are definitely some perks and comforts that come with working from home. But a lot of people uh, can feel over time that if they're not careful of how they're using that time or what they're doing um, with the time they're home, they can start to feel depressed over time. Uh, Alex Korb, who wrote The Upward Spiral, and now I think it was maybe five years ago, I had him on the show. That's actually a great book uh, on depression and how to do small things or small things you can do to help combat depression. Um, but he talks about in that book, I remember how he got the opportunity to start working from home and he thought it was great, but then he realized it started to make him a little depressed or feel depressed over time. You're less physically active to begin with. That's something we um, are going to have to deal with. A lot of people are already looking up and doing home workouts and things they can do at home, and that's great. Um, but also the physical, uh, so the social interaction with other people is a big loss that you have. And so I've already seen people posting online of um, group face chats and actually uh, FaceTime and chats, a uh, group of friends um, me and my brother's friends, they were talking about maybe having a nightly chat with each other, trying to find the right way to do a video chat. I think that's actually a great idea. And of course, these things won't make up for face-to-face -face, uh, interaction, but it can help to deal with that. So we want to try to make sure 
even if we can't be next to each other, we try our best to connect and communicate with one another because that isolation also can make us more and more depressed over time. Uh, interestingly enough, we have been living in a very digital world uh, as of late, especially the last decade plus, and so we have oftentimes lived this way anyway. Um, there was There's a book I haven't read, I think it's called Alone Together, but there's a lot of books and articles on this topic about how, in a way, our phones and the media that we have now the access to can connect us with people more, but it also makes us feel more disconnected, more alone, because we have a lot more superficial interactions with other people, but oftentimes a lot less of the real face-to-face -face quality time interactions that we used to have. And so we can feel very social, as in we're connecting and communicating with a lot of people, but still feel very empty. Our, our social tank can feel very empty because there wasn't a lot of depth and meaning and connection uh, in those different ways that we've communicated with individuals. So for example, you might text with 10 people throughout the day. And so in a way, when you get home or you're getting ready for bed, you feel like you talk to a lot of people, but oftentimes you'll feel a lack of connection because it just stayed on the surface. There's only a certain level of depth you can get to texting alone. And so in that way, we've prepared for this, maybe not in the best way, of being socially distant as far as physical proximity goes, um, but still trying to connect to one another. So hopefully we'll have some of those skills ready of how to connect with each other. But I get the sense that people will be using FaceTime and different ways of Skyping and connecting over video call more than before. And that can be hopefully good and be nice. Um, another thing people face when they're uh, spending time at home, even if it's working at home, or in this case, that's a little little bit different but similar theme is the unstructured time can uh, get to us over time and so I've actually seen people post schedules online su suggested schedules I saw one funny one for parents with their kids at home and um, it was kind of funny just like different things like letting their kids run wild for, like for a certain period of time um, but it could be good to make your own schedule so you can look at the ones people have provide and then adjust it to yourself. But that could be good to give some kind of structure to your days. We, uh, as much as we can get tied up and bogged up, down by the structure of somebody's having meetings and appointments and different things going on, and we can hate that we have these external things that are setting our schedule or forcing us to be here and be there and, and go back and forth, um, having a sense of structure does feel good for most people. So it doesn't mean every minute has to be accounted for, but just be aware of that because you might feel like, oh, what did I do today? And it's like time to go to sleep and you feel like you did nothing all day and that might not feel so good. So putting some structure in your day uh, can help maybe make things a little bit less uh, lethargic or make you feel less sluggish and you might feel like you're being uh, productive. And I always don't like that word because people at times think that the goal of life or the only thing that's important is being productive and sometimes having a conversation with a loved one doesn't include productivity because it doesn't have them some kind of tangible result but feeling a little bit of that um, structure that gives you productivity can feel good so your days don't feel uh, too monotonous and too much like you're not doing anything and related to that when you make a schedule for yourself you can also start to include some things that you maybe wish you did more of. For example, reading books for some people is something or working on some project. Um, 
let's say, writing a book or working on something around the house or whatever it might be, it could be a good opportunity. So it's a forced, I don't want to say reset, but for a lot of people, you're forced to just be at home and start from scratch in some ways as far as your days and weeks and months go. So it could be a good opportunity to rethink how you spend your time. What is it you don't do enough of? What's something you always wish you did? Uh, something that a lot of us are going to have more than anything is free time compared to what we usually have. I've already been thinking about that and feeling that myself, but you have more of this free time than you used to have. And so we can think about how are we going to use that time? Think of that part as an unintended gift or consequence of what's going on. You really don't have much of a choice. It's going to be important what you decide to do with that time. So um, think about what you wish you did more of, what you wish you'd started or projects or things you wanted to do, it could be a great time to give yourself uh, that if you, you know, you have to, um, to take advantage of this time in the best way you can. I wanted to also make a side note. I'll come back to this, that um, taking time off from work and the things that are happening and people being forced to take time off and lots of different types of businesses being closed and lots of different types of careers being um, not usable at this time or have to be forced to take time off it's not a luxury that everyone has hopefully um, you have some way to take care of yourself during this time but it is not the same for everyone for many people not being able to work not having their kids uh, going to school which would be a way of child care um, all these things can be costs that they can't afford unfortunately and so uh, it's a reminder of some more systematic issues that we have in the United States and around the world where some people don't have these types of uh, flexibility where they can't, they're living paycheck to paycheck or barely making it. And so when they can't work or when they lose some source of uh, income or childcare, it can be something that they can't handle. Or even worse, if they get coronavirus or are worried about being sick, the, un the medical costs that might come about can be really damaging and even sadder than that is if they're afraid to get tested because they might not be able to afford it they might then be spreading it even more so we see again as i was mentioning before about how we're all connected that when people are not taken care of it can affect all of us uh, a threat to justice anywhere uh, is a threat to justice everywhere so anytime people don't get what they need and what they don't deserve it will come back and affect everyone and so we should be thinking about those things and thinking about the less fortunate now, but I hope we don't forget that um, when hopefully in the near future we start moving back towards normal, we should never accept that to be normal, that some people are suffering and struggling uh, so much all the time and that this will be even harder for them. Again, if they can't work, losing um, the childcare that might come with school, not only that for a lot of kids, this is heartbreaking. They get meals at school and that can be one of their main sources of nutrition, of eating, that they eat a free meal at school and now they don't have that. And in lots of areas are trying to figure out what to do. In the meantime, um, the organization I volunteer with here in Los Angeles School on Wheels, they've had to, they decided to stop their tutoring services. The schools in Los Angeles have shut down. They thought it made sense to be in line with that, um, to, to not have their services. So a lot of kids would come there and get a snack and so many other things that they do. 
and now they're not sure how they're going to be able to support her. I think they're trying to figure out ways they can give out resources. But again, um, some people are going to be affected by this much more than others. And it's a reminder of the inequities that we have in the world and here in the United States. And I hope people won't forget that once things go back to quote unquote normal, however soon that is and whatever that normal is going to look like. So just a little bit of a aside on that when we talk about having this free time for a lot of people it's not going to feel like free time when they don't know what they're doing as far as making it financially and i hope the government will intervene to make sure everyone is taken care of um, during this time and of course going forward as well so we want to try to make use of this time uh, as i was mentioning before what you don't do enough of do more of and also something you've probably seen a lot of people post about is Yes, restaurants are closed, venues are closed, lots of things are canceled, but connecting to loved ones, connecting to one another is very much still open and available and might even be easier to do in the sense that you might feel like you have time for it. Now, I would argue we always have to find the time to connect to our loved ones, um, especially, for example, partners in a relationship and when you have your kids, making sure you give them enough time. Um, but now you have more time to do that and it can be a good time to try to invest in those relationships, invest in those connections, invest in those um, friendships that you have to try to be close to them. We need it more than ever right now too when we're all feeling panicked and stressed and not so good. It can feel good to connect to one another. And wanted to make a last few notes in these final minutes about your kids. Um, your kids might be worrying too. Now, first, as is always the case, your kids are going to look to you. So if you're panicked and freaking out uh, over the top about it, they're going to pick up on that and feel like it's a dangerous world out there, not just now, but maybe they'll carry that forward. So be aware of that. Um, I'm very much a proponent of being open with kids and letting them know about certain things, but they don't need to know the details of everything that's going on. Um, especially depends on their age, be aware of how much you share with them. For a lot of times, uh, for a lot of uh, things, kids can see or hear something and they just understand the worst part. So if you have a child who is already prone to anxiety and you mention this and you talk about, oh yeah, sometimes people cough or they this, now anytime someone coughs to them, it's coronavirus and they're going to die. So you have to be aware of what you share with your kids. It's just like uh, after 9-11, anyone who watched the news you would see the planes hitting the towers hundreds of times and for us we know it's that same incident being shown again and again but for a young child it was new every time or in a way gets added to their statistics of understanding the world to think this is happening all the time and now they're just constantly worried that every plane hits a building or every building gets hit by a plane and so we have to be aware of what we share and how we share it with them to not panic them to let them know we're going to be okay and what we're doing and why we're doing this and helping one another. But we don't need to get into um, the details of the disease, especially with young children. With the older ones, we can explain to them um, depending on their age. But be aware of how your own well-being and your own mental status when it comes to this is going to be passed on to your kids. If they see you freaking out, they're going to pick up on that. If they see you hoarding so lots of supplies as if you're going to be in a bunker for six months they're going to feel like the world is a safe uh, unsafe place and and scarcity is 
the mindset they're going to take from that, that we should be afraid of not having enough. So be very aware of how you communicate to your children about this. I hope people will use this as a time to communicate and connect with their children and loved ones. Um, it's a, it's a, unfortunately a very tough time for all of us. We have to make adjustments. Things are changing. The world is changing in ways that we haven't had to experience before. And I wish the best for everyone out there and for all of us and that it hopefully will have the most minimal impact possible and we'll do everything we can uh, as a whole humanity to make that happen. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Thank you to Amir here in the studio with me. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Tawakwi. Have a wonderful night.